We are now up to number 237, book two, number 37. And what we are talking about is perfection in the yamas brings about certain results. And we are up to, to one who is established in non-covetousness, all riches come. And what has been written here, when you have no desire for others' possessions or for what is not yours by right, there comes an inner relaxation which produces the magnetism to attract whatever you need in life. Jewels come effortlessly is how that's often put. Um, so I'll mean, you just read exactly what he says. According to my life experience, what happens is that when you happily accept things as they are, there comes a wholly positive expectation of life, which in its turn becomes magnetic enough to draw to yourself everything and anything you need. There was a very interesting one of those little TED Talks that somebody forwarded to me, and uh, it was about happiness, and it was delivered by a Harvard psychologist whose name... Gary, do you remember his name? It's a very good talk. Um, it's a 12-minute talk. It's a 20-minute talk, and he delivers it in 12 minutes, which is a bit <laughs> of a challenge to follow every word he says because they have a very nice time limit. But he had very many interesting statistics and facts. And He teaches at Harvard. He teaches a course on happiness, which is one of the most attended classes in the psychology department at Harvard. Um, but he made this very interesting statement that seems relevant in a couple of places to our readings tonight, in one of his statistics that he gave us like this, he said that a positive, this is all like research, a positive state of mind, a positive attitude toward life actually activates all what are called all the learning centers in the brain are activated when you're happy. And when you're not happy, many of those learning centers shut down, which of course is just a straight on testimonial for the Living Wisdom School system, where people seem to feel that if children are not miserable in school, they can't possibly be learning. I used to argue with the parents, or posit to the parents an alternative point of view when I was dealing with admissions in our school. When you are scared to death and uncomfortable, how receptive are you to new ideas? And why would children be any different? I mean, I had discussions with one. I mean, it's fine if they're happy you know, in the lower grades, but certainly by the fourth grade, they must be stressed. That was actually what someone said to me. That was when I asked her how well she's able to cope when she's afraid and uncomfortable. It's a very strange idea, but we are living in strange times. But um, what Swamiji's talking about here is a very simple principle, which is when we're relaxed, we're very magnetic. I don't mean when we're low energy, because to one who is established in non-covetousness, bear in mind, that's not a passivity. That's not a sort of, well, I'm poor and I'm just going to die poor and I'm just going to get along this way. It's not a, a, a downward-moving acceptance of, of a deprived condition. It's rather just completely settled that what is mine will come to me. I don't have to think about what other people have that I don't have. I mean, think how much energy... People in this world, especially in the Western world, especially in this country, especially in this place, how much energy people spend 
thinking about what other people have that they don't have. And it's, it's so... Um, all per, the, the all-pervasive uh, allurement of things that you don't have, just pulling on you all the time, all of the billboards and um, the stores and just everything and the way people look and walk around and dress and the things they have, that you're always thinking about, um, you, you can always be thinking about the possibilities in front of you that are not already yours. It's a really big, uh, it's so much a part of the way we live that we don't even actually know that it's there. I remember when I was about 15 and I began to realize that you couldn't dress out of fashion even if you wanted to because when you went to the stores there was only one thing in the store and what was in the store was what was ever popular. I worked at the age of 15 in a, 15 or 16 in a department store and we were really just, just high school kids who were extra help, but they gave us a special name and were sort of training us for careers in real, uh, real retail. And I was, because I was so articulate, I was sort of considered to be a, a, a star of that little group, so I was given the, the plum assignment, which was to be able to sell junior-sized clothes to my own contemporaries. Of course, they misread me terribly because all this stuff was really cheesy, and it was super trendy. And I was just appalled by all of it. And I was appalled by the, the mindless teenagers who came in and wanted it. So I, I did really, really badly. They really didn't quite know what to do with me. Finally, they sent me to towels, and I did really well. <laughs> I did really well in sheets and towels. And then after that, they put me into um, quality women's clothing for women who were slightly oversized and also did really well there. <laughs> it was just a whole different bob in those places. But I didn't know about thrift stores, so I didn't know you could just go and sort of piece together. I gradually began to sew my own clothes, but just the whole picture of being controlled by other people's point of view. So Amiji once said, people who follow fashion have no taste of their own. That was his comment. He was very devastating. Perhaps that's not entirely true. But the point being, if it comes into you from the outside, is it really your own? I know, I've since learned that there are people who are fashionable just because it's in their genes to be so. When we were impoverished nuns, just had nothing, um, this woman named Prita, who was very artistic and really had a fashion flair, we all went out to chop wood, to literally go out in the woods with Ananta and some of the other men to do wood chopping. And Preeta shows up in a little pair of coveralls and a little matching shirt and a little scarf around her neck. <laughs> we didn't have cell phones, so we couldn't actually take the picture and caption it like you could nowadays. But we said, Bloomingdale's goes wood chopping. That's just what she looked like. I mean, the rest of us were just wearing whatever came out of the thrift. The, the free box was actually what it was called at Ananda at that time hadn't even elevated to the level of the thrift store, which is called the free box. And you would find things in the free box because you had nothing. We had no money. We had no money to spend. We could eat, we could heat our houses, and that was it. And it actually was very interesting because it's, if you have nothing, if you really have nothing and can spend nothing, it's actually not very stressful because there's simply no choices. But the choices that became tricky is when we had a modest amount of money. 
because then you could actually entertain desires. And then you started entertaining them, and then all of a sudden they would keep you awake at night. But when you couldn't buy anything except absolute necessities, you had an illusion of freedom that was not really a freedom from desires, it was just the freedom from the possibility, so there was no point in thinking about it. But what Swami is talking about here is when you actually can just let go of, of that outward need to possess. I mean, really think about it. Just think how much energy f- goes out from us in just establishing the world around us. Think of the story of Sri Teshwar and Master when Master came back in 1935 and Sri Teshwar was sitting there in his ashram and Master thought, oh, said to him, to Sri Teshwar, I think I'll buy you a new carpet. And Sri Teshwar said, Why? And then he kind of went like this, that's your world out there. He was actually saying something more profound, which is Yogananda, Master, had a divine assignment that he had to come to America, that he had to really relate to the world in an enormous way. Sri Yukteswar said, my asana where I meditate is perfectly adequate for me. My little corner is fine. Just whatever happens out there, it doesn't make any difference to me. Think how simple. Just what a, what a complete release. Now, of course, it wasn't really entirely so because Sri Yukteswar owned his own property. And it also says in autobiography he sometimes had to fight uh, people who were trying to take it away from him and had to litigate in order to hold his property. So he wasn't indifferent. I mean, if it had been given to him and he was responsible, he responded. He wasn't passive. But there was nothing in him that was reaching out, trying to make it more. And in that, you naturally, where do you fall? Uh, you fall back into your own center, bearing in mind that this is dynamic. You take all of the energy that most of us are dissipating in outward thoughts, and it's just held inside of you. And it's held inside of you in perfect peace because you've overcome the thought that I have to strive for anything. I either have everything that is mine or my own will come to me. And I I just don't have to uh, uh, reach in any way. I just have to remain centered. It's a very important distinction between being centered and being passive. When I was trying to explain to someone this a, a way of working with myself that I developed over many years was if I didn't clearly know, let me think exactly how to say this. Sometimes I have been in a position where there is nothing I can do to bring about a certain result, or I don't know what I should do to bring about a certain result. And so all of the energy that I would spend in outward activity and of course, I'm, I'm a very dynamic person who does everything I do with great intensity. So when I commit myself to do something, I tend to really move. So that's a lot of energy. But if there's no place to put that energy, uh, because there's no clarity, or there's simply nothing I can do, all of that energy is still directed. But it's directed toward holding one's consciousness perfectly still and receptive. And you, you see how different that is than simply not acting. All, you're using all of your energy, but just to be at peace. It's hard, you don't necessarily think of using energy to be at peace, but you do. 
because all of your energy is fully engaged, wide awake, utterly receptive, but still. And that's what he's describing there, is that I don't need or want anything. I have perfect confidence that God is in charge. Every single one of these comes back to a surrender to God's will and a complete acceptance of God's will. And that's when um, Swamiji writes here, there's tremendous magnetism in that because there's no fear that's contradicting it. And it's a completely positive state. So all of the neurons in the brain are firing completely. And also one is completely poised in the center because you're not, part of you isn't leaning over like this. I, um, I shared with you a few weeks ago in this class that incident I had in India, in Gurgaon, where I developed a desire to go to this particular store and go shopping. And it was very difficult. I believe I was staying in Swami's house. I'm not certain of that, but I believe I was. And there was only one car and one driver, and there was just... I didn't quite have command of the situation there because I didn't live there all the time, and... I had to go to a great deal of trouble to arrange things so that I could have access to the driver in the car. And I woke up with my mind set on what I was going to go to the shopping mall and find and buy. And I just was consumed by desire. And as a consequence, uh, as I explained to you all that time, I just behaved in a, in a just startlingly insensitive way towards Swami Kriyananda, way out of my normal zone. And I just barreled along and did all the wrong things because I was so lost in what I needed to acquire that afterwards I just had to sit at the table with Swamiji and apologize. And he was very kind because he remarked that usually I was quite sensitive to his needs and preferences. And so it was quite notable that I had, was, had behaved so badly that particular day. And I just said very honestly to him, my, 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 once you give desire the upper hand, it can really carry you away. He said, one has to be really careful all the time. Isn't that so? He just said, yes. But it was, it was just so clear to me how blinded we get. And see, much of the time we're so blinded we don't even know we're blind. And then the more we unsettle our magnetism with all that restless desire, the more we don't automatically attract what we need. Because it's a, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Swamiji talks about, and he mentions it in here, when he wrote The Path, and he talked about how he had that experiment, if you, expect, if you want to be lucky, expect to be lucky. And he went out with that tremendous positive attitude, and many positive things happened. And then doubt entered his mind. He became ill, and his energy level went down. And, and with that sort of bad experience, the possibility, fear, began to enter the equation. And then all of a sudden, it, it wasn't working in the same way anymore. There's a lot of truth in all of that, that we really need to... See, we think so peculiarly. If we don't have what we need, then we need to work more to get more. And Patanjali is telling us exactly the opposite. Just sent, settle in to uh, contentment and not desiring that which, doesn't, which isn't already yours or isn't really yours. And everything else will naturally follow. This is how the sadhus live. I was just reading today something Swami wrote. And he was talking about the essential freedom of people at Ananda and how, as, as a collective, you know, how much we accomplish with how little money 
both in our personal lives and in our collective life, and that we don't have we don't have as much external security as the way we behave. <laughs> but as a consequence also, there seems to be a natural flow toward what we do. I mean, we were discussing today how people looking, even at what's going on here in this area, with Ananda, you know, we, we seem to just be wealthy because we've manifested so much. But we've manifested a lot. It's not that we're wealthy. We've just manifested a lot because we have that freedom to work these divine rules. We're not, and we're not desiring for the sake of desiring. We're only asking that Divine Mother help us to manifest that which, is, which belongs to this work, is the way I would put it. What Master needs in order to be successful here. And it's, um, it's very faith-inducing. I think it's worth following for all of us. Any questions or thoughts on this? Yes, Tricia. So it says, when you have no desire for others' possessions or for what is not yours by right. Mm -hmm. So does that mean you can have desires for what is yours by right? And if so, what is there that we have a right to? I know that's actually. I don't have something that comes to mind even. Well, actually, there are many things that are ours by right. All, all personal examples. I can give you examples. Um, uh, the year before I married David, I was living in a small trailer at Ananda Village, and I'd lived in that trailer for a long time. I was actually living in a fairly large trailer at that point. And I had this sudden feeling that that, um, that living space was not conducive to my spiritual welfare. I just felt it. I just felt like this situation is not conducive to my spiritual welfare. I need more light. I need, I need color. I, just need, I need more space. I just need a different environment. I could sort of feel what that environment would look like. Such a thought had never crossed my mind. It never crossed my mind, but all of a sudden it crossed my mind very strongly. For, my, for your spiritual well-being, you need a different setting. I had a little conversation with God and Guru and said, you know, I'm a I'm perfectly competent to get money and manifest what I can imagine. It would, it would be effortless for me to do so. However, I would have to turn my back on my dharma to do so. So how could I possibly turn my back on, this, on my dharma in order to fulfill what I feel to be an inner prompting? And uh, so I just kind of put the conundrum in God's lap and left it there. A year later, I'd moved out of that trailer. I was living at one of the domes at the seclusion retreat. David and I were married. I looked up, and I sort of... I woke up one morning, and I looked, and I realized that I was looking, and it was this tiny little dome. It was nothing big. It had a little skylight, and it was white instead of brown like my trailer. I looked at it, and I thought, oh, my gosh, this is it. And it just... I didn't... There was no way I could have anticipated how it would come to me. And I didn't actually um, desire it. I just observed that it seemed to be something that was in my best interest to have. And there have been many things. I've seen Swamiji many times, you know, just conceive of the need for something. And it, it was always... We had, we, when we were younger at Ananda Village, we always had a little trouble watching Swamiji because 
he, the, the, the amount of money that passed through his world and the, the number of things that he had in his life was much greater than what the rest of us had. Swamiji was perfectly comfortable and never made the slightest apology for anything. But I finally figured it out that that was simple living for him because the flow of energy that went through him and the work that he had to do simply demanded something else. And it wasn't that he desired it, it was that it was the appropriate level for him to live, to set an example, to have space that was large enough to show us what gracious living would really be about. He was always the first one to buy a new piece of technology, the first computer, the printer, the uh, uh, music writing computer, just many, many different things that he got um, that none of us could even imagine getting. But I know he felt what I've experienced sometimes, that this was simply the right thing for him to have. And that's, that's quite different. And then when that comes in, you have to put out the energy to manifest it appropriately. I was stuck because I couldn't, I couldn't go get money. And money was the only way I could see that coming to me because that was a, an, easy, an easy thing for me to do, but an improper thing for me to do. Because if I had coveted it, I would have had to go out and get money. But instead I knew it was mine by right, but I just couldn't see how it was going to work. Does that make sense? Because sometimes people suppress appropriate inner promptings and fear to act on those inner promptings because of the thought that I can't want anything. And they miss the difference between restless desires and genuine inner prompting that this is the appropriate karma and you need to act it out. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because sometimes, sometimes your desire is given to you so that you will understand how to put out willpower to achieve a goal. And so sometimes your desire is really meant to be fulfilled because otherwise you don't know how to put out willpower and achieve a goal. So even sometimes selfish desires or frivolous desires, self-selfish in the sense of it's only about what I want, or frivolous desires are still God-inspired because it's a necessary karmic flow for you. So it's, it's, you can't just dogmatize it. You have to have intuition. You have to feel, this is, this is mine. I should do this. You know? Swamiji made, um, made me go out and buy more clothes and look nicer and pay attention to my appearance and commended me when I started dressing well and uh, you know, just doing all those things which prior to that I would have thought that would have been the looniest thing in the world to do but it was not, it was a suppressed energy, it wasn't a transcended energy. So that's, that's what you have to balance out. Does that make sense? I may have crossed the line in shopping a little bit. I always said to David, if, you know, if, if I've got a few thousand dollars worth of extra stuff in my closet when I die, I can live with the karma. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> So then I got this. <laughs> it was God's way of balancing the scales. <laughs> okay. Any other questions or thoughts? <laughs> okay. So the next one, two thirty-eight. One who is established in continence achieves full vigor. And Swami says, "I have gone into this extensively before, <laughs> and you may remember that we did." Okay. 
Um, vigor enters the body through the medulla oblongata, oblongata here, drawn by the will. The greater the will, the greater the flow of energy. Um, continence not only strengthens the will, but increases the available energy. Um, uh, this is an interesting fact. I mean, even without conscious thought on our part, and you know, continence is just the, that con- the control of the energy in the body, mostly meaning celibacy or at least self-restraint to some extent. But whatever energy we don't fritter away, you know, builds magnetism. And that's, that's the, uh, uh, you know, the image of a yogi is someone who's not dissipating their energy all the time. Uh, sexuality is just one form of dissipating energy, and it's a very dramatic form of, of outwardly expressing energy. But there's all kinds of ways in which we're just constantly dissipating energy. Yogananda called them fillers, you know, where we're just doing things that are just spending our energy. I mean, I, all of us are guilty of it. I certainly put myself in that group. That was, again, when I always think about Swamiji's life as being such a, an amazing example of someone who just was not... He was not compelled by restlessness, and he was not compelled by a desire um, to be unconscious. That's the only way I can think to put it. It's, it's like there's a certain pleasure for, for most of us in tamasic, um, well, I guess I have to say the same word, just dissipating energy. You know, just with chatter or with restlessness or with uh, videos on television or watching the internet too much or whatever it might be, where instead of everything being contained and then consciously directed, we want to let it out in one way. It wasn't that Swami never relaxed when movies and videos became an option. That really became something that he did. But he watched basically a handful of movies. Those people who knew him well saw Bambi maybe a hundred (laughs) times. He just had a handful of movies that he really liked. He'd watch that movie over and over. Cinderella, Bambi, occasionally Dumbo. (laughs) He liked early Disney films, Hopscotch with Walter Matthau. Just a few movies that he really liked. Every so often a new one would enter the world and it was always such a big deal when a new movie came into the world. And so he would sit and he would sit with friends, but even then he didn't do it alone. He would always use it as an opportunity to invite people over and then he would be able to have a passive satsang when he didn't have the energy to really um, create magnetism itself. He'd still bring people into his aura and then everyone would sit together and watch this movie for the hundredth time, which you would enjoy for the hundredth time um, because of his presence and because of his enjoyment in it. And it just, you never felt that he was just letting his energy out without first lifting it and then letting it flow from a high level. So it's not only that you have to be constructively busy all the time, which he was a great deal of the time, but even when he relaxed, he still always raised the energy. He didn't just let it dissipate in um, downward-pulling ways. That's what it really amounts to. Uh, Tandava? So he says that... Um, I think it's on. Yeah, light screen. He says self-control strengthens the will and increases the energy. 
but there's also an experience where you're trying to exert your self-control and it sort of uses up your willpower. And you, I mean, I tend to feel like I have a limited amount of willpower. And if I'm using it all up, then I don't feel like I have more, more willpower. Sometimes if I've been doing stuff that takes a lot of willpower, I feel like I have less and I have less energy. And I don't know. I'm just saying like the, the experience often feels different than what that sentence sounds like. Well, Where's the balance? Um, the balance is the difference between the art and the science of yoga. So you, how much discipline is enough discipline? And, and that's a question that's often asked. And Swamiji says that which you can do with joy at the point at which the effort to discipline yourself becomes more of a strain than the fruits of the discipline, then you have to back up a little bit. How far you have to back up is, again, what you have to really sensitively work with. And whether it's um, you shift your life in a major way or you just make small shifts, you don't try to do everything at the same time. Someone wrote me a letter and he was relatively new on the path, and he said that he'd read that Swami said you should only sleep six hours a night. And he was explaining to me how he was trying to only sleep six hours a night and how his sleep cycle was completely messed up, and he overslept in the mornings, and he, he was a lawyer, and he was still trying to carry on his practice. And I just wrote, and I said, I don't think this is the right discipline for you. Uh, just, this is not working for you. It might be a theoretical possibility, but it's not working for you. Just sleep as much as you need to, and... Practice devotion. You know, use your energy to control your thoughts instead of how much you're sleeping at night. And so all of us are always having to follow that. It's, it's one of the uh, most important things to get comfortable with on the spiritual path in truth is just a balanced relationship to your own actual capacities. And unless and until you... It, you well, that's a, it's a form of non-covetousness, I mean, truthfully, because you can't covet a, a, a style of life that is not naturally your own. You have to be comfortable with the life that you have. I remember many, many years ago at the beginning of uh, my life in the spiritual path, Swami was talking about how your essential nature is more or less set. And I realized that many saints are silent, and when I became a saint, I was not likely to be one of those. I was probably going to be as chatty, you know, in samadhi as I am right now. I mean, this is just who I am. I'm just a kind of a chatty sort. And Swamiji used to talk about how when he would meditate, his exact words or he felt like he was sitting on a volcano of creative ideas that were just driving him all the time to be doing and innovating and making things happen. And he spoke of, I believe, Brother Bhaktananda, who he said was just, you know, well, he was called Bhaktananda. He was pure love for God and guru. And Swamiji said, not unkindly, that he didn't think the man had ever had a creative idea. And because of that, um, he was so comfortable and just relaxed. He was not driven. And Bhaktananda sort of envied Swami's creativity in a sense, envied. And Swami looked rather longingly at Bhaktananda's simplicity because they were just completely different sorts. And and, uh, each one had to go with the energy that was there and had to discipline themselves within that context. Swami could not discipline himself to not be creative. In fact, that was what happened with SRF, is that they thought he should have disciplined himself. And just as, as they 
members of the board of directors said to him, why don't you just wait to be told what to do? It was just unthinkable for Swamiji. He just couldn't do it. And Bhaktananda was very content just to carry out the ideas and the orders that other people gave him. So each one of us has to just ask, where is the natural, what is mine by right? And as I, that's where I started, not covet a life that's not yours. And don't think that your spiritual life needs to look any different than it actually looks. It's just going to be shaped like you. That's the very nature of it. And, you know, what, what is discipline for you may be very different than what is discipline for someone else. You know, this ability that God has given me to just stand up and speak is so effortless on my part in many ways. And Swamiji and I just talk to each other. It takes a lot of energy but it's not difficult. There's a great deal of difference between those two. It's not effortless in the sense that it's low energy. It takes a tremendous energy, but it's just not, simply not hard. If I tried to sing, now that would be very difficult. I just don't know how to do it. It doesn't come naturally to me to be able to do that. So what is discipline for one person, which is perhaps to be able to stand up and speak, takes a tremendous discipline for one, but for another it might take a completely different kind of discipline to do it. So non-covetousness, we have to just be who we are. But, but power does not come from nowhere. And I think that's what's important here. It isn't just a question of, of sexuality. It's that power must be generated from somewhere. And it's generated by the magnetism that we create by focused energy and not just thinking that we can just drift, but that we choose and then we focus, and that very willpower has magnetism, that very definition, this is how I'm going to live, this is what I'm going to do. That in itself has a certain power that draws more power to it. Everything, everything in the world is created by someone's tapasya. Somebody creates magnetism, and that magnetism creates force. When Sant Keshavdas came to see Ananda village quite a few years ago, and it was even just starting, but Santji looked at the place and he said, somebody did a lot of tapasya to make this. And he looked at Swami Kriyananda because he knew that's where the tapasya had come from. Swami carried you know, arthritic hips for the first 20 years of Ananda until they were so worn down that the surgeon said, I do not know why you are not bedridden with the pain that you must have been carrying in these hips. And Swamiji could have had something done about that much earlier but in a very real sense, as he put it, it was just, he was doing so much to Pasya at that time, he said, to make Ananda happen, that he never thought of it as distinct or separate from everything else he was doing. And it was only after Ananda was settled, and very literally, he didn't have to carry it anymore, that he thought, oh, I'll get my hips replaced. And so he had the operations in order to ease that. But he was in so much pain so much of the time. But it was just part of what he did. And then when he went to India later, I put this in my book, when he was in India in 2003, he went to the hospital so many times in those first year or two, just on a regular basis. He'd just go to this, the small hospital he was going to then. He had his regular room there. It was like going to a hotel. And he would just go up to his regular room and he was having congestive heart failure and all sorts of things. And he was he was in the hospital bed and I was... Most of the time when he was in the hospital, one of us was there. And I happened to be visiting, so I was in his room. And 
An unknown Swami from Rishikesh heard about Swami Kriyananda and found him in the hospital and came and I don't know who the man was. He just, you know, they all know each other. And the man said to Swamiji, oh, sir, I'm so sorry to see you in the hospital like this. And Swami Kriyananda just laughed and he says, oh, I'm just doing tapasya to establish Ananda's work in India. I mean, he just, it was as clear as can be. He was just using his body. He was allowing those forces to come in and then he was using his power of will to just allow those forces to come through and not have it disturb his consciousness and just letting those forces run through. He was drawing energy to a focus by his self-control and by his discipline, by his, what you would call it, self-offering at that point and drawing all that karma to a focus. And uh, that's what he did for most of those 10 years that he was there. He just had one exciting hospital adventure after another. All of it to pass. It wasn't, it wasn't his karma, you see. It was karma for the work. That's the point. Because there's power in tapasya. That's how you get... I mean, as, as Swami also... I, I, later I asked him, I said, what? You know, what is this? He said, well, every hero has to do penance before he goes off on his quest, doesn't he? And whenever you want a boon from Shiva, you have to go off into the mountains and live on roots and berries and meditate 20 hours a day in a cave. Isn't that so? I mean, all heroic stories involve great sacrifice. Because there's magnetism in self-control and in discipline. So that's why we do it. It's important to realize that. You see, it's not for the sake of suffering. This is how it gets so twisted. Because you see heroic people make sacrifices and then accomplish great things, and you somehow think it's the suffering that's pleasing to God. That's not true. It's the self-offering and the self-discipline. And the power that comes from tapasya, which is, you know, uh, divinely offered energy, not just, oh, if everybody persecutes me and I'm miserable and I'm sick and that's really what God wants for me and if I'm not unhappy, I'm not really doing what I should do. That's the incredible twisted interpretation of the crucifixion, which is not true. Jesus offered himself. Um, he, he, he directed into his own physical body the karma of his disciples. That's what, that's what he was doing. He died for our sins. That's exactly the same statement. But that doesn't mean we should all suffer. It means that we should also offer ourselves with courage and focus for the sake of uplifting the world or creating what we have to create. Does that make sense? Very important nuance. And you, then you have fun with it. Everybody does master's diet together. Or Swamiji talks about the monks, <coughs> Tumo. <coughs> Tumo is the Tibetan practice of enduring cold or heat and cold. And Swami talks about all the young monks, you know, standing in the back of the truck, driving without, without their shirts on in the cold night air and everybody just being tough in the cold. And, you know, this just, it's fun. You can start having fun with it. And uh, he, he remember he jokes in the path about somebody seemed to be cold and Norman said, do mo, to mo. <laughs> Just do more of, of this tapasya. And then you have, you have fun with it. It's not really like you're hurting yourself. You're enjoying. You're enjoying the power that you've generated. There has to be joy in it. How much discipline is enough? That which you can do with joy. If you lose your joy, then lighten up until you find it again. Okay. Swamiji was commenting also on what I was reading about Ananda people being more free 
than many people who are accumulating money and security and so on, but are always afraid to spend it. Um, he was saying that, but, but the life that we live uh, appears to so many people to be such a life of so much sacrifice. He was writing this also in the early years of Ananda Village when it really, really looked like that. Um, it just is so outside what people can imagine. They, they just can't see the relationships. They can't see where the power comes from. Uh, it depends on where you lived. With running, I'm sorry. He wrote that when we were all at the early years of Ananda Village, when, when it, was, it looked like a tremendous sacrifice to live there. That was when Karen and David were living in the teepee and his parents came to visit and they sat around having dinner in the teepee and to their surprise, the parents did nothing but reminisce about the Depression. <laughs> and only later did it even cross their minds that what they were looking at was... You know, to Pasi on a level they couldn't even comprehend. No one would live like this by choice. I remember one parent who came to see where his, his or her child was living at that point walked through the, the downtown area of the farm at that point when the 100-year-old barn was still standing and it was just really pathetic. And he said, this is worse than the grapes of wrath. That's how he described it. And it was just sort of, we just kind of looked around and we, did, we couldn't even see it. I lived in a trailer, this tiny little trailer that was, had holes in the floor, which was just fine because that was ventilation. And there was grass growing through some of the holes in the floor. And the whole thing was just, it was just the right size. But it was very, very small. When anybody came to visit, I had a tiny little folding chair that slipped in behind something. And I pulled it out and set it up in the only empty space. And they would sit there and I would sit in my other chair. It was just great to me. I didn't, I just couldn't even see it for what it looked like. Because to me, it was just like, it was this fantastic opportunity to do this really wonderful thing, and I just didn't notice. I didn't notice that I had to carry water. I didn't notice that the shower house was, I don't know, 300 yards away. I never used it anywhere. I just boiled water on my little iron hot plate. I just didn't see anything about how seedy and impoverished that place was and how pathetic it looked. And I was just dressed in what I could find in the free box. You know, it was just, everything about it was fabulous. And one day, I really tried hard to objectively perceive it. And I I just really kind of bent my mind to see it objectively. And, you know, the grapes of wrath came to mind. I mean, this is pathetic, impoverished, absolutely sacrificial living. But it didn't feel even slightly like that. See, that's, that's, that's the kind of real self-control that we really want to have, where we don't even think that we're sacrificing anything. We're just seeing what needs to be done, we're embracing it, and it just doesn't cross our mind. Deprivation doesn't cross our mind. All that we're thinking of is, isn't this fun? Isn't this just a marvelous, really fun opportunity to be able to serve God? That's where we're going. And we can't always get there. We have good days and bad. Some days are grim, and we're just holding on until that day passes and everything turns around. But there's a long rhythm here that we're used to. And, and it needs, it, if, if it doesn't revert back to joy on a fairly steady rhythm, or if you can't see the joy, even if it's kind of icky right here, 
if you're caught in what we call the icky middle between when you launch on your spiritual journey and when you get far enough to start enjoying it, you need to think about ratcheting down a little bit because you can't last otherwise. It's really just, it's very practical. The shortest route to God is slow and steady. Otherwise you just burn out. And people burn out left and right. A big dramatic gesture and then it's all gone. Much better to just move slow and steady and not quit. Much more. Does that make sense? All right. Why don't we then take a short break? It's a few minutes early, but it's a good stopping point. Okay. Any questions or comments on what we just went through before we gallop on? Okay. So now we are into the last of the yamas. One who becomes... uh, 239. One who becomes established in non-attachment develops the ability to remember his past lives. The reason, uh, that's such an interesting one. I remember when I first heard that, how fascinated I was by that. The reason for this phenomenon is that attachment to this particular body and to the places, possessions, events, and things of this particular time make this incarnation appear to be one's only reality. When attachment to present reality is overcome, your view of reality naturally expands over a broader field. Isn't that fascinating? So he, Patanjali takes every one of these, which just starts out, you know, non-attachment, I'm not attached to my house or to my car or to my shoes or whatever it might be. But he takes it, he just keeps bringing it sort of closer and closer and closer in to your fundamental reality. Because we talk about non-attachment to all those things that, are self-evidently separate from us. And it isn't quite so difficult, at least in theory, to think about it. But he brings it all the way back to perfect non-attachment would have to be understanding that we belong to everything and nothing belongs to us. It's only the, the ego, as Swami wrote, I was reading this in the Gita commentary, the ego has this idea that in order to enjoy things it has to possess them. And we were, someone was talking today about some car that cost $250,000. Everybody has their, um, the things they like. You know, cars to me, I just, I I, I have trouble finding mine. And every once in a while I look at it. I had a white one when everyone had a white car. So when I traded in the white one after it was 17 or so years old, I bought a silver one just in time for everybody else buying a silver car. So now I'm in exactly the same situation. I have the most generic, most common car in all parking lots. And I do not have a clear picture in my mind, even now, after a year or more, of what this car looks like. The other day I I saw some aspect of the design, and I was just sure it wasn't mine. I didn't think it looked like that. But I, I checked the Ananda license plate on the back, which is how I find it, and then I see Swami's picture inside. And really... I had to look at both. I saw the Ananda license plate, and then I looked at Swami's picture, and then I assured myself that this was indeed my car. Everybody's different, right? $250,000 for a car. I just, first of all, I mean, anyway, I can't even go there. Like, why? But for somebody who does it, obviously it makes a great deal of sense to them, or else it seemed like a good idea at the time, or else they wouldn't have done it. But we all have different things that the ego desires to possess. Whatever 
they mean to us, whatever they represent to us. Um, the ego feels that it will feel better if it has that. Of course, it's a delusion, but it's a thought that we have. People have to have a house of a certain type, has to be arranged in a certain way. And these are things that you just, this is what I was saying earlier, you have to just, you have to ask yourself, what can I sacrifice and what do I have to have? And just balance it out in that certain way. In the early years of Ananda, some people tried to live, with, live without heat. And then we had cold winters. And it was just like, it was so like not an option for me, it never rose to the level even of a joke. It was just not possible. I could eat very, very simply. That was really, I, I, I always had to eat. I was, not good at, I, I was not good at being hungry, and I was really terrible at being cold. But I could go really simple with the diet, and the house could be really small, but it had to be warm. In fact, I had a little song of tribute that I would sing to my heater, which I will not sing to you. It was something that I would only do in private. But I just so appreciated my heater sometimes when I was alone, I would sing a little song of praise to it just so it knew that he and I were really in this together. <laughs> so just everybody has their limit. And I've, I've learned to appreciate that where people draw those lines are just where they have to draw those lines. I used to not really understand what, what people's worlds look, look like to them. But even to have is different than to be attached to. Attached to is to define your happiness in terms of, and even more than that, to define yourself in terms of. So we practice being non-attached to everything. So when it gets taken away from us, it just goes away. There's the famous story that's told, and I don't know if by now it really is the actual facts, but this is how I always remember it, when Ananda burned in 1976, and uh, we had about 10 or 15 minutes when we saw that the housing clusters were going to burn, a few people went to their own homes to try to retrieve things. Uh, But we'd never considered Ananda burning. So nobody had any mental preparation. After Ananda burned that time, people had a lot of mental preparation. There were even lists in your house for a while. Because on that occasion also, often somebody else had to go to your house because you were somewhere else, either on the property or off the property. So someone else had 10 minutes to go into your house and try to figure out what in that house really should be saved in those few minutes. So the story goes, at least, that when Jyotish was going to his own house, Davy was in town with their newborn son. Someone said, take everything from the house that's of value to you. So that's a very bad thing to say to such a philosophical man. (laughs) The story is that he walked into the house and essentially just looked at it all and thought, why am I just going to grab all this stuff? You know, it's just like, what's of value to me here? And uh, Davy said they had just, they were redoing their altar and everything of the altar was sort of in one box. So he picked that up and supposedly walked out of the house with nothing else in his hands, just surrendered it all to Divine Mother. What is of value? Nothing. And I hope it's true. If it's not exactly true, it's probably close to the truth. Because that is right. In such a moment, you know, you're going to sort of grapple for small things. Fortunately, someone else came in after him and took some of the baby's clothes and stuff like that that you might have thought of in the moment if you had a different orientation. But it's very, um, it's a very enjoyable exercise 
with the realities of the things you have to just imagine what if it all burned down? You know, what would I actually miss? If I had just five minutes to run through this house, what would I actually take? You know, what, what do I really, what's really of my heart and not just stuff that fills the space I'm in? Then you also have to ask yourself, why do I have so much stuff in this house if that's how I actually feel? But at the very least, even if, and Swami Kriyananda had three homes on three continents and they were all very nicely appointed. They were very gracious homes. He brought many things of beauty into them. But he said truly, and it was absolutely true, I could walk away and never look back. He created them because it was appropriate to create them. He was a public figure. He needed to live at a certain level. When people came to his house, they needed to feel a certain graciousness. It had to be provided. It took me a long time to understand that. It just wouldn't have worked for him to live in uh, without that level. As Jyotish was saying recently in something he wrote, you know, higher astral beings appreciate beauty and you create a certain harmony around you and it attracts higher forces to you. We were scolded by Swami Chidananda in the early years of Ananda for being so disorderly. He said, all of this disorder gives homes to lower astral entities. You don't want them to be surrounding you. And so Swami brought us up to a higher astral level. But really, he just could walk away from all of it. He wasn't defined by it. It was just a responsibility he had. And so we we need to practice that kind of non-attachment all the time. Imagine the people you love dying. Not in a morbid sense, but what would happen if if these people were gone? If in one way or another, all of this that I define as myself passed away, would I still be okay? How would I feel? Who am I in the midst of all of this? And it, the level at which you actually surrender your physical possessions or change the way you live is the art of yoga. But the degree to which you inwardly separate yourself from what surrounds you is, is essential to the spiritual path. And then you bring it all the way into the very body that you live in and that we take such good care of all the time and that we look in at the mirror to see how it's doing you know, and we examine it, and we notice its little hurts and its little oddities and its little aging characteristics and all of these different things. And really try to think, who, would I, who was I before I was in this form? And who, I, who will I be after this is gone? I've, I've been with enough people dying and I've seen enough bodies after the person leaves. And I sometimes just think of my own face, you know? Really? Will David give my funeral? Will I give his? You know, sometimes I wonder. And I joke sometimes. The first time I heard Dambara sing to death, I'm no stranger, I said, please sing that at my funeral. And I asked Tandava if he's still a brahmachari and not Anaya Swami to wear his yellow tennis shoes. <laughs> because, you say, of the shoes, because everyone will laugh. <laughs> I mean, just like, but I'm, I'm not being morbid. It's, it's a deliberate thought. Like, there will be that time when we will be watching this world from the other side, when we will be attending our own funeral and we'll be just looking at that body there. I think often I saw Swami Kriyananda's body and I, think, I just think about that body lying there. And it was so alive for so long and now it isn't. I went, uh, when, I, when Leela died at Ananda village, Durga was her caregiver for that month and I was staying at Durga's house because we were making the movie. 
And the, the guest room is the cottage adjacent to the main house, but it's just 10 feet away. And 3.30 in the morning, the phone rings, and I knew there was only one possible reason the phone was ringing, and Leela had passed. So I, I got up too, and we just drove over there. So 10 minutes after Leela had died, I was sitting there in the room, and there's her body, and it's, she's gone. It's just completely gone, and the body is so different after you leave. You're so, when somebody's dying, you're so attentive to the body, and as soon as that body is empty, it, it's so dramatically not you. It's so dramatically nothing without your spirit in it. And just think about it as much as you can in a non-morbid way, in a way that just makes you cheery and light. And just don't let yourself, don't let ourselves become so deeply identified with this that it is the only reality we can see. And of course, in an everyday sense, that means that we understand that other people are just as real as I am, and they're all having their own experience, and their realities have to be taken into account. I'm not the only one living in a body moving through this universe that all of these other bodies are there. And I love contemplating how real everyone is to himself. You know? It's like, I'm going to leave here and I know where I'm going and I have my little bed and I'm going to have my little supper and I'm going to follow my own little routine and I'm going to wake up and I'm going to be me. You know? And every one of you is going to do just the same, aren't you? And your whole little story is going to all be predicated on the fact that we're attached and defined by this little body. Master said, you have a sour taste in your mouth, don't you? I'm so much in your body, I can tell what you're tasting. I know every single thought that you think. You know, imagine the difference of that. And so this is where this uh, principle comes from, that when we become so identified with a greater reality, and the, the particular is so incidental to us, then all of a sudden we have that vista. We can see the whole greater reality. We can feel the incarnations we've been. I told you about Bella when she was in the last days of her life, just lying there. And she was leaving a husband and a beautiful home and her, her sister, sisters, whom she loved very much. She couldn't have been, she must have been in her 40s when she died. The family just had a history of cancer that her sister Maria got later too. And she said, I'm just sitting here, thousands of faces are passing in front of me. And every one of them has been mine. And she said, it's, it's hard to really cling to this one when you're looking at all those different faces. And we can't quite, most of us, really remember, but we have so many intimations of who we were. Just so many inexplicable, otherwise inexplicable inclinations. The first time I saw classical Indian dancing, uh, some dancers came to Ananda village and we set up a a stage somewhere outside, and I'd never been out of the country at that point and certainly never been to India. And these were Westerners, but they were highly trained, and they, they, had, they did the ones with all the bells on the legs. And I was so moved, I literally had to walk away. I just couldn't. I, it was so emotional for me to see them dancing. And I'd never seen it in my life. But it just it captured me on a level I could... I really was almost unbearable. And I, self-evidently. It's just been my world. 
And it was, the, it was the only time that I've been in Ananda that I realized there was another life I could have lived. It was too late, of course, and I wasn't going to leave, but otherwise it was so strong. So, I mean, we all have these experiences where we just know. I, when we went to uh, Greece, and I went, we went somewhere, and there was this little stone convent cell with a little cold water tap outside and just this stone bench. And I just went and sat in there. This is our honeymoon, no less. I just like, just leave me here and come back in another hundred years. <laughs> it was so mine. And just think about that. It's, it's, it's fun to meditate on how many things we've done. And then you sort of get, you think about this one. And there will come a time, and it's not going to be very far away for any of us, relatively speaking, um, when this one is just as gone as all the others. And do we want to be so startled when it goes away? Or do we want to practice already, just seeing it in the course of the whole cycle? Remember Swamiji trying to comfort Norman, who is in such a mood? Oh, Norman, how long can this terrible mood last? Forty, fifty years? Swami thought that was comforting. Norman became just, he, as Swami said, ran screaming from the room. To him, it, he was so identified with the reality he was having, he couldn't stand back. Swamiji was so looking at the big picture, 40, 50 years, what's the big deal? You just sort of put up with it and then it'll be over. And when Swami was being burned at the stake in his dream, remember he had the dream? He said, oh yeah, this will be painful for a little while and then it'll be over. And everything is painful for a little while, and then it's over. It's when someone in the community was going through just horrible karma. Everything was, absolutely everything was going wrong. And uh, the man said to Swami, you know, help! And Swami just said, all karma ends. And, in fact, it did. All karma ends, sooner or later. And we can just stand back from this. And that's why, as Swami said, as soon as you... You know, so uh, step outside of time and place and see yourself in the eternal flow, then all of where you've been and where you're going just becomes obvious to you because we don't have blinders on anymore. And that's how we endure it. Swamiji, when he would talk about going to the dentist without Novocaine, and he would say he would concentrate on something else so that he didn't feel the pain. But if the pain was too strong, he would just think, well, it's been a good life, a little pain won't suffer, it won't be so bad. Just be detached from this reality. So it hurts for a while, then it'll be over. It won't matter. So, thoughts or questions? Marilyn? After <clears throat> talking about the attachment to the body, this isn't going to sound as interesting, I don't think. But I was, I was thinking um, attachment to activities, attachment to outcomes, um, those are all daily, daily Absolutely concerns daily. we have. Right. And, and, um, and we all, I know I live with them, attachments to all those things. But they all, you can take it from both sides. Okay, I don't have it on. Is it on? Okay, um, the attachment to 
the external things, you can, you can take it from either side. If you can break the egoic identification with the entire incarnation, you don't have to do it piece by piece. Um, as Swami said, he never identified with Kriyananda, he just considered Kriyananda to be an event for which he was responsible. So you cut the whole thing, the whole delusion off at the base. But alternatively, you work it from the outside also, which is every time you find yourself becoming too, well, just too identified with. What you have to realize is the difference between identification and attachment and commitment. You can be very, you, you must be very committed because if we don't, if we don't give ourselves completely to what's happening, we don't have the magnetism. We're not overcoming tamasic energy. We're not showing the right courage. To be non-attached is that we commit ourselves completely, and then however it unfolds is how God wants it to be unfold. We don't covet an outcome other than the outcome that's meant to be ours. And so we have lots of magnetism because we're not covetous, but it has to be done, and we do it completely. That's why we work with so much intensity. These are, see, these are the details of what the path really looks like that we know because of Swamiji. We, we watched him. Whenever I would see people um, criticize Swamiji, sometimes they would criticism, criticize him for not following certain yogic principles that they were articulating. And I would say, who taught you those yogic principles? <laughs> and it was always Swamiji who taught them. And I didn't ask that question unless I knew. And I raised the question is, do you think he also knows them in as much as he taught it to you? So if you see him in behaving in a way that you think is contrary to that, perhaps you need to look deeper. And a lot of it came in this. He was deeply committed because it was God's, uh, commission to him. And he, he acted far more than most people acted, you know, with uh, determination to bring about the result that he'd set his mind to bringing about. But to be attached to it or defined by it was something different. What he was attached to was doing God's will. And if God's will shifted for him, he shifted just without ever looking back. If you're attached, when things shift, you're not able to shift with it. You resist, you're upset. Um, that's why you're making, trying to make something happen, something goes wrong. And you become very agitated about the fact that it went wrong instead of just saying, well, this is just the necessary stage to where I'm going. And then you just persevere because you don't have that necessity that it has to be a certain way. God wants me to do this, and so I'm going to do it. This is, do you see the difference in that? Can you give that back to her, please? When we were talking about willpower, I was thinking that um, I use a lot of my willpower to not resist what is. And that's what I'm, I'm always trying to do is, oh, this is what I need to do right now. This is what I need to do right now. This is what I need to do right now. And that's, that's what I, how I try and be. And when I am that way, um, I'm pretty relaxed. I don't feel tired after doing a lot of stuff because I'm just doing 
I'm not resisting anything. That's exactly right. And you can, I mean, you can call it non-covetousness. You're not coveting a reality other than the one you have to face. Because when you, you know, if you want things to be other than they are, and this is how they are, I mean, we, we, you understand? It's just like, this has to be done, and I'm not wishing things were different. I'm not desiring something different than what has been given to me. And as a consequence, both you control. See, the, that's where seva comes in. Uh, when you're having to serve, the way I think of it is like this. One has one's self-interest and one's self-indulgence and one's moods and all the desires one has for things to be a certain way. And then you have the commitment to serve selflessly without regard to all of those things. And I, I used to think, see, those were like two fast cars in a drag race. <laughs> that all your rotten attitudes were competing against your, your selfless service and they would be neck and neck for a long time and then at a certain point Steva would just turn it, pull ahead. And that's really what it's like. And you do have to use a lot of discipline to just pick yourself up and do it, you know, just keep going and not wish it were different than it is and not be upset with other people when they don't come through or with machines when they don't work or whatever it might be. And you just keep being selfless and the selfishness competes, and eventually it gets, gets way far ahead. And all that discipline really shifts your inner, inner way of being. It's no longer just a discipline, it's just the way you've become. You know, I used to uh, be extremely protective of my home space. And uh, I was always a good friend of Durga and Vidura, who had the most casual relationship to their home space. I just couldn't comprehend it. They would have people visiting them and living with them and in and out and sleeping in the living room and it just gave me the heebie-jeebies even to look at it. And I don't know, somewhere along the line, I just got over it. And, you know, people are just in and out of our house all the time now and people stay there all the time. Some, you know, sometimes David and I actually kept track of how many guests we had, but that was sort of pointless. We did that just for fun once. You just how often other people were living with us, and I just realized I'd become Durga. <laughs> I don't know when I became Durga, but my, you know, selfish protectiveness and my desire to use what was given to us for the benefit of others, they just were neck and neck for a long time, and then one just you know, went out ahead of the other. I'm still protective of the room where I close the door. I will admit that. I haven't gotten that far yet. But still... And it's just amazing. You just watch. It's like you're one way and then you're another way. Because you do keep... Well, I, I like non-covetousness in all of this. You, you stop wanting things to be other than they are. And that you just accept that the way they are and this relaxation sets in. God takes care of you. Well, anything else? Okay. That'll do us. What was the cartoon that you showed me? Who showed me one? Or maybe I, uh, yes, he had nothing else to give, so he gave his friend. He, he had nothing else to give, so he gave him the heebie-jeebies. <laughs> I saw another one that said, it's a prayer. Uh, let's see. Lord, give me coffee to change the things that I can change and give me wine to accept the things I can't. <laughs> It's not true wisdom, but I thought it was very funny. (laughs) Okay, on that note, we covered...
We covered 237, 238, and 239. Okay. <laughs>